Well, we are picking up where we left off as we're going through First and Second Thessalonians with the theme of living in the light of his return, because that is the theme of those two letters. Uh, the Apostle Paul sets straight some of the truths about the return of Jesus Christ. And it's just beautiful timing because we are really going to get to that section of First Thessalonians this morning where he specifically talks about what it's going to look like at the return of Christ. And I love this because of the timing, and we just finished celebrating the first advent. And during that time of the first advent, of course, what we were celebrating was the fact that, as John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But we will behold His glory a second time as well. And I th think about the, the longing that so many saints for so many hundreds of years had for the coming of Messiah. And we even sing songs about it. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to you, O Israel. Can you just sense that groaning hope? That longing for the advent of Jesus Christ. Well, now Christians really in many ways feel that same way. And that's kind of unique, a unique, unique contribution of Christianity, especially during the time of the Apostle Paul. The ancients sort of saw life as just this sort of um, repetitive cycle of futility, of things just going around and around and around and around. And Augustine said, the record straight. He says, no, history is linear. History is heading in a particular direction. History is heading towards the redemption of all creation from the fall of mankind. So as we think about the second advent, we would continue to sing this hymn, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell, your people save and give them victory or the grave. So here in the wake of celebrating the first advent, I'm looking forward to teaching from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 about the second advent of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then unpack these wonderful texts that we have for you this morning. Lord, we do come before you with enthusiasm, God, about thinking of the return of Jesus Christ. It is our great hope and our longing to see you face to face. We don't know when that's going to be. That's not the point. The point is to live knowing that it is to come. And I pray, Lord God, that you would convict us, challenge us, encourage us, and bless us with the truth of the coming of the second advent of Christ. A promise that is so sure it is as if it's already happened. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Uh, you might find your home group help insert of assistance this morning. I'm going to read the text its entirety, and then we will see uh, that, that we're going to talk about uh, Christ will return in verses 13 through 15, what happens to Christians at the Christ's return in verses 16 through 17, and why Christ's return is important in verse uh, 18. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, God says, the Apostle Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So again, we look here, first of all, at the the fact that Christ will return. And that's something that we just need to accept uh, as an established fact, the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, Scripture is pregnant with that very same principle. And it's, of course, very explicit right here. But Paul knows he starts off by saying he doesn't want them to be uninformed about this. And the reason why, remember, you've got to take this and understand the, the context which the Apostle Paul is in. He is writing to the Thessalonian churches. And you will recall that Paul planted that church, but opposition to the gospel rose very quickly. And Paul had to kind of hide tail it out of Thessalonica. And while he was gone, persecution rose up continually from the Jews and then also from people within the town itself, uh, persecuting the church of the Thessalonians. And the apostle Paul probably emphasized this idea of the return of Jesus Christ, but he didn't have opportunity perhaps to complete the lesson. So they're sort of filling in the blanks here, but they're filling it in incorrectly. It reminded me of many years ago when I decided to play the bagpipes. And the reason why I decided to play it is the most holy of all instruments. Uh, and, uh, and I got a tape. This, this, is back, this is how long ago it was. I got a tape and I got an instruction manual and I got a practice channel. And I learned to play the bagpipes myself on the practice channel. You learn on a practice channel before you get the big bag. Uh, and, uh, so then finally a band started up, a bagpipe band started up in Columbia. So I showed up and I was like, yeah, I got my eight songs down, watch this and everything. And I basically had taught myself incorrectly. I didn't have somebody to teach me what was going on. So I was doing all kinds of crossing noises and didn't get my grace notes right. And you're thinking, how can you tell if someone's playing the bagpipe incorrectly? But you couldn't tell. (laughs) And I had to basically start all over again. That's sort of the situation the Thessalonians find themselves in. Uh, they, they 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 were consumed with this idea of the return of Christ, but they were real concerned because some of the people in the church had died. They had died before the return of Christ. And then they started to adapt the mourning, the lack of hope in the culture around them. And they started to to worry about the souls of those that have gone. So they were confused. So he does not want them to be uninformed. And praise God for that because it helps us to be informed as well. And he says here about those who are asleep. Don't you love that description of the death of a Christian? Of Christian. Those who are asleep. There, is, or there are few things that are more peaceful than watching someone sleep, than being asleep yourself. And me, indeed, some of us actually go for sleep for the sake of peace, right? To be able to, to get away from the world and forget about it. But this is a common term without, throughout Scripture about the, the death of believers. You see this in the Old Testament where they would speak of the old saints going to rest with their fathers. When Stephen died a very violent death, being stoned to death right there in the presence of the Apostle Paul, in a sense, under his authority, it was said by uh, uh, Dr. Luke in Acts chapter 7 that he fell asleep. When Jesus was speaking about Lazarus with his intention to go raise Lazarus from the dead, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But this idea of sleep, which is a beautiful picture of what the Christian does when he dies, affects only our body. 
There is no such thing as soul sleep. That is, a, that is an error of theology that is taught sometimes. We know that because the Apostle Paul, again, seems to be sort of consumed with this idea of the return of Christ and what happens to Christians once they die. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says he would prefer rather to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.23 says this, it's a desire to depart and be with Christ. That is very much better. So to be out of this body as a believer is to be directly in the presence of God. There's no soul sleep. You're not waiting for the return of Christ until you see God. Now, you will, you, at the return of Christ, we will be reunited with our resurrected bodies, but our spirits are actually in the presence of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains the souls of the righteous being made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Isn't that beautiful? If we were to see the face of God right now, it would be so holy, it would overwhelm us. But at this point in time, when we leave this body of sin and we depart in our spirits, we can behold the face of God. You know, it's amazing to me that he actually wants us with him. That shows true love, does it not? So Christ conquered death for the believer. T.E. Wilson says this, death has been changed to sleep by the work of Christ. It's an apt metaphor in which the whole concept of death is transformed. As a pastor, I have opportunity uh, to perform funerals. And let me tell you, there's a difference between performing the funeral of a Christian and of a non-Christian. There is a hope that you just don't have for the non-Christian when you perform a Christian service, uh, a funeral service. He goes on to say that you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Again, he is look, he's kind of reflecting the pagan culture at the time. William Barclay makes some extensive comments upon the, the view, doing research about what the Greek, what the Romans uh, would said about death at the time. Uh, he says here, in the face of death, a pagan, would st pa pagan world stood in despair. They met it with grim resignation and bleak hopelessness. Asyclius wrote, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. Theocritus wrote, there is no hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Catullus wrote, once, uh, when once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. On the tombstone, sometimes a grim epitaph would be carved, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Compare that to the inscription that was found in a Christian catacomb where it said, Alexander is not dead, but he lives above the stars and his body rests in the tomb. That's the hope of the Christian. Christ, who was the first fruits of those who were resurrected from the dead, went before us to prepare the way for our salvation as well. And it says here, for we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Notice this is a qualifier. Folks, you cannot be a Christian unless you believe that Jesus died and rose again. I've, I've shared the gospel with people before, and they seem to be, uh, they seem to be sensitive to spiritual things. They want, to, they, they want, in a sense, to find God and that kind of thing. But they just say, I just can't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Well, then you cannot be a Christian. This is just sort of Christianity 101 here. And he says that. For if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, our hope is in the resurrection because that's what we're hoping for ourselves. And if Jesus didn't rise, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we won't rise either. But the fact is Jesus did rise from the dead. And those who are with Jesus will rise as well. We can hope for the second advent of Christ because God was faithful to fulfill his promise in the first advent of Christ. 
He goes on to say, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ. And here we get some of the details of what it's going to be like uh, when, when Christ does uh, come back. So he's going to bring those who have fallen asleep. And he says this, we say this by the word of the Lord. This is not wishful thinking. This is not sentimentality. This is not just we sure hope this, this thing works out. This was a direct teaching of Jesus Christ himself to the apostle Paul. That though who are alive, those who are alive... And remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So those who are alive when Christ comes back are, have, no less reason, uh, have, have no less reason to be hopeful than those uh, who have died. So whether you're alive or whether you're dead, if you're a believer, when Christ comes back, you're going to be with Christ. In a sense, the death of the body is irrelevant, is what the apostles Paul is saying here. And, of course, we have the promise from Jesus in John chapter 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, there you may be also. Again, it's just remarkable to me that as messed up and as dysfunctional as we are, he wants us to be with him because he loves us. He loves us. And then, of course, he speaks of the coming of the Lord. That uh, Greek term is parousia, which you will often uh, see referred to. Uh, the theologians actually use the Greek term to describe the coming back of the Lord. It means the presence or a coming here. Hebrews chapter 9 speaks of this. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. Think about how many times we think about our own sin. We even devote part of the service to confessing it, Right? We're constantly thinking about our sin. And even at the, as we finish one year, as we begin a, uh, a new year, we sort of have this misguided hope, boy, this next year we're going to get our act together. <laughs> it's not that we should give up on that, but we, we never seem to fit the standard that we make for ourselves, do we? We never seem to fit that standard. We consistently fail. As I mentioned in my earlier prayer, some of us have already broken our New Year's resolutions. And it's, you know... 10.30 on Sunday morning on January 1st, right? And yet, it's amazing. When he comes back, it's, there's no reference to sin because sin is done away with. Your sins were nailed to the cross if you're a believer. So the, basically, the judgment to come is a judgment of rewards. You're going to be rewarded for how you devoted yourself uh, to him in this life. Now we see here what happens to Christians at Christ's return in verses 16 through 17. He says here, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. He's given kind of a, this amazing uh, picture of the return of Jesus Christ. It's almost hard for us to, to get our, our, our minds around this. Uh, but notice this. He says here, and he emphasizes the Lord himself. This is a very personal return. The return of Jesus Christ, the second advent of Jesus Christ, is just as physical as the first advent of Jesus Christ. In the first advent of Jesus Christ, we had a human baby. That adult God human is going to come back in the clouds physically. It's going to be real. Real. This is not a dream. This is not mystical language. It's not figurative language. The Lord himself will descend from heaven and how? With a shout. With a shout. There, there's a, that's, that's kind of a military term, like, a, like an order. Uh, and he's going to be coming down and he's going to be declaring his return with a shout. 
And of course, we saw in the ascension of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter one. Uh, you know, where that it's kind of funny, you know. Uh, and we 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 always use this passage on ascension Sunday, but it's sort of funny, you know. You've got the, the apostles; they've gone back. They keep expecting Jesus to kind of put them in charge to whoop up on the Romans and that kind of thing. Uh, Jesus says that's not the way it's going to work, and then he ascends in the clouds, and the apostles are sitting there going, "I mean." We kind of think that's funny. Would we not be doing the same thing? I mean, how many of y'all have ever seen a, a, an ascended Messiah, right? So they're sitting there like this, but then the angels show up and they say this, uh, you know, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? <laughs> you know, there's work to be done here. Why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So as they saw him appear, ascend, sit at the right hand of God the Father, he's going to reverse that. He's going to come back down and bring heaven with him. What a remarkable thing it is. And this shout, this idea of a shout is the same kind of shout that was similar in the raising of Lazarus when it was said that uh, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. All right. So this is, this is the hour when he comes back, he's going to be saying to us that are still alive and to those who have departed, come forth, join me, be with me as I come back to earth. John 5 says this, the hour when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He goes on to say, and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, these phenomena, the, the idea of a trumpet and the archangel, you kind of get the idea of Sinai, don't you? The loud rumblings, the cloud, everything else of Sinai, which is a sign of judgment. Because at the same time that he's coming to fulfill the redemption of believers, he's coming to judge the earth itself here. But the other thing about with a blasting trumpet, as William Hendrickson points out, both Zephaniah and Zechariah say that a loud signal from God, a trumpet signal, is a sign of Jehovah's coming to rescue his people. It's much like you see these old Western movies, you know, your people, they're circled up and they're all about to be massacred and all of a sudden they hear that trumpet. And the cavalry comes charging in, right? Well, to us, that's what it's going to sound like. When we hear that trumpet, we hear that shout, we see the glory of God. Uh, for the believer, that's going to be the highlight of their life. That is going to be the end of human history. That is going to be the fulfillment, the recreation of the entire universe the way it was supposed to be before the fall. But for the believer, that's not the case. That's one reason why I get so passionate about preaching about the return of Christ. And then frankly, I, you know, just the, all the reading I've been doing over the last few weeks, I just get emotional about it. Because I remember that moment of my own salvation some 40 years ago at, Cle at Clemson in the fraternity house. You know, you're, you're, you imagine what that fraternity house looked like on January 1. Actually, they would have all been gone. But any, any kind of Sunday morning, it was not a place of worship. Your feet would literally stick to the, to the floor because of the dried beer that was all over the floor, you know. And I remember th thinking during that time, that summer before my sophomore year, and I was just reflecting on my lifestyle and my associations and what I did with my time and what I did with my money. And I thought, when he comes back, I'm in trouble. I'm on the wrong side of this thing. I understood there was going to be some great uh, cataclysmic event at the end of human history. I mean, I just, for some reason, the Spirit gave me an understanding of that, but I realized I was on the wrong team. I was going to hell. I was going to hell. And because I, I just somehow believed that he was coming back, I, the Lord put on my heart to be on the right side, 
He filled me with the Spirit, and I came to know the Lord. So when I read about his return, it reminds me of those days before I, uh, I made the great transition in becoming a Christian. He's going to shout. He's going to blast. How noisy does this sound? Shout, trumpet blast, the shout of an archangel. This is not secret. Everyone is going to see this. You know, some people said, how are we going to be able to see that? The, the, the planet is round. Probably some of you still think it's flat, but the planet by and large is round, right? How are we all going to see him at the same time? One commentator said it's like we look at a map of the planet and we can all see the entire planet when we lay it out flat. What we can't seem to do, God can do, but everybody's going to see this. Everybody is going to hear this. This goes against this very popular notion in American evangelicalism of a secret rapture. Do you get any sense of a secret here? Shout, trumpet, voices, bodies being raised. This is not secret. It could not be more public. Every human being that's alive at the time is going to see this. There's no secret rapture here in Scripture. Matthew 24 says the same thing. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with the power great with, great with glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. But this term rapture is in this particular text. He says here, the day uh, the dead when Christ will rise first, then we who are alive will remain and shall be caught up together with him in the clouds. That idea of caught up, harpazo, was actually translated in the Latin Vulgate with rapio, where we get the idea of, of rapture, which means to be caught up. That, that term is often a violent way of being caught up, like, like being grabbed and caught up. And there's this line of thought out there. There's going to be the secret rapture of the church. And then the church is going to go up into heaven. And then all the tribulation is going to come. And then Christ is going to come back. And he's going to reign on earth for a thousand years. It's so complicated. I have to review it all the time. It's just not the clear teaching of, of Holy Scripture. Now, having said that, you need to know this too. That the folks who believe that are our friends. Okay? They, serious the evangelicals, people who take God's word seriously, people who take God seriously, believe in this dispensational rapture and things like that. So we are to treat them as brothers and sisters. This is not a point of fellowship. You could believe that and join this church, okay? But it is wrong. It's wrong. And the reason why it's wrong is it starts with this, this presumption, this idea that God has a separate plan for Israel than he does for the church. And it all starts with that. So when you start with that wrong thinking, you have to kind of create all these other events that have to do with the rebuilding of the temple and things like that. Listen, folks, if you believe that, and if you've heard that, well, you have to have heard that because that's the popular view in evangelical Christianity, please read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Galatians. Three times in Galatians chapter 3, uh, Paul says to the Gentiles of Galatians that they are sons of Abraham. He closes Galatians by saying the church is the Israel of God. Go to Romans chapter 11. Are there two vines there? They're not. There's one vine, Israel, and the Gentiles were grafted into that one vine. So you, 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 know, you interpret scripture based upon other scripture. Israel was a type of church, a foreshadow of the, of the election that was to come that would be worldwide here. 
I don't want to belabor that point. That point's going to keep coming up, though, because we get hit with this, this all the time. It's the popular Left Behind series. In our day, it was the late great planet Earth. And, uh, and you, end up, you end up going chapter after chapter after chapter with no reference to Scripture. It, it ends up almost being fictional in so many ways. So he says here that what's going to happen here, that this, uh, this rapture event, the, the term actually there that, that is used there was often used in ancient writings to talk about a delegation going out to greet uh, a, an emperor or a great conquering gen, general and then bring him back into the city. This actually happened in, the, in Thessalonica where Pompey was greeted by... by uh, by a delegation from the city and brought into Thessalonica, Octavian Caesar, the same thing happened. He came with all his army, a delegation went out, they brought him in. That's what he, Paul is describing here. If Jesus came back today, those of us who are still alive this afternoon, after eating all the holiday food that we ate, if he came back, we would go back and bring him in, and he would bring heaven with him, and heaven and earth would be joined into one wonderful union. Creation itself is being redeemed. And we are to meet the Lord in the air and join him in our resurrected, redeemed uh, bodies. Second Peter says this in Second Peter 3, 12 to 13. We are looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of the Lord on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promises, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know how many shootings have occurred in Anderson just over this weekend? I was out in the backyard walking Sky the Wonder Dog, and, uh, and just all the sirens were going all over the place in downtown. There was a shooting in an apartment complex. There was another one last night. Uh, a young man got killed at, at Anderson Mall a couple of months ago. His sister was murdered yesterday. What do you think about this idea that we will live on an earth where righteousness dwells? The headlines are all about righteousness. There's no more shootings. There's no more death. There's no more cancer. There's no more pain. There's no more sadness. There's no more COVID. An earth where righteousness dwells. One of the wonderful things is we're going to be given a body that will help us to be able to enjoy that. Our body's not simply going to be replaced. It's going to be completely transformed. We're going to be metamorphosized. So if you're alive, you're going to get your, your current body is going to be um, created into a resurrected body. And those who've been departed from their body, their body is going to be renewed and they're going to be restored to that. And it's going to be so glorious that if we were to see each other, we would be tempted to worship. One, one, uh, it wasn't about this particular subject, but I was reading uh, uh, one book yesterday. That said that the difference between our current body and our resurrected body would be the similar to the difference between us and a vegetable. How much further are you above a cabbage? That's how much further we're going to be when we come back to heaven. Because to enjoy this new redeemed earth, we're going to have our new redeemed body. It's the kind of body that Jesus has. We, uh, we, uh, John said in 1 John, uh, when we know he appears, we will be like him. We will have a similar kind of redeemed body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will be put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I love this. The Apostle Paul is mocking death. Because Jesus Christ conquered death. He removed the sting from death. And he gives us those wonderful, comfortable words. And we will always be with the Lord forever. Cornelius Venema says this, The great centerpiece of biblical hope and expectation for the future is the return of Jesus Christ. And it will happen at the end of the age. This will be the final event of human history. Now, notice this, and, and we will, of course, we continue with the subject first, through 1 Thessalonians, but also 2 Thessalonians. But Paul, there's a few things Paul doesn't include in these few verses. One is the judgment of unbelievers. The other one is the timing of Christ's return. Now, he's going to get to that. You've got to remember, chapter divisions were added later on, right? So when Paul's writing this letter, they're reading the full letter out. But Paul goes on to talk about the judgment of unbelievers in chapter 5. For you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape, okay? Now, a thief, it's not that a thief is stealthy. We've already talked about how loud this event's going to be, but he's unexpected. No one expects the thief to come in. It's going to happen suddenly. In 2 Thessalonians, he goes on to say, Then the Lord Jesus fell revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. He's going to make all things right. You know, there's this, uh, there's this substitute for, for the gospel now, uh, um, this social justice movement that's so popular with a lot of the young people. And I think one reason why it's there is that we all have, whether you're a Christian or not, this sense of justice, this sense that something's broken and it needs to be fixed. And we all want our life to count for something. We all want our life to count for something. And this idea that God's going to come back, Christ is going to come back, and he's going to fix planet Earth, he's going to punish all injustice, he's going to change things, there's no longer going to be any abuse, any sex trafficking, uh, any, any, uh, any uh, abandoned children or anything like that. He's going to fix that. This is, should be very appealing to a lot of young people who are trying to make their mark on, 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 in their life, make their life count for something. And a matter of fact, I would submit to you that, that this is the only reason, this belief, this hope that all humans seem to have in general, this idea of a God and justice and all that, is the only reason why we can believe that our life matters for anything. The pagans didn't believe that. Life was just this cycle. Nothing really mattered. But there's a burn inside. There's a desire to go back to Eden. In a sense, everybody wants to live on an earth where righteousness dwells. And that's why there's so many people working so hard to try to establish righteousness. But it ends up being futile in the light of the fact that Jesus is the one that's going to ultimately establish it and that we need to be working on his side and, uh, and, and bring, establishing righteousness by bringing the gospel and bringing about changed hearts. The other thing that, <clears throat> that he doesn't mention here is the timing of Christ's return. Now, why doesn't Paul 
This is one of your questions on your home group help, so you can like score points at home group if you listen carefully the next minute. Why doesn't Paul mention the timing of this? You know, people sure seem to be interested in mentioning the timing of this. How many books have come out? How many books, if you went to the thrift store right now, that are, are, are on the table there about when Christ was going to come back in the year 2014, right? There's always people that are making predictions. Every time a, a Russia invades somebody or a bomb goes off in Israel, there's somebody saying, oh, this is sure sign that Christ is going to come back, right? Well, what does the scripture say about when Christ is going to come back? Matthew 24 says this, But the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone knows at the return of Jesus Christ. Acts 1.7, they want to know, are you going to establish the kingdom? Jesus says to his apostles, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. Matthew 24, 5 says, Though be alert, for you do not know the day or the hour. Right? So we just, people seem to be fixed on this idea of when. It does not matter. That's just human pride. What matters is how are you living your life in the eventual return because it is going to come back. If it doesn't come back in your lifetime, you're going to be with him in your death time. So everything you do makes a difference. And it's such a source of encouragement. Revelation 19 says this, as the angels assemble the guests for the marriage feast of the Lamb. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It's coming. And I love that because we think about the, the cataclysmic of them. I mean, earth is going to be burned up and it's going to be reestablished and all that kind of stuff. And yet scripture describes it as a wedding as a great feast that never ends. He describes the church as dysfunctional, as messed up as we are, as the bride of Christ. I just love that. Think about every, I think about every wedding I've ever performed. When everybody's looking at the bride coming down the aisle, there's a couple other pastors here. They probably did say, you know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at the groom. Because I love that. I can't wait to see Addison's face when Zoe comes walking down that aisle uh, in June. I, that the, the, the groom, when they see their bride coming down, JP did this with Megan. They just, oh, oh, it's the most beautiful sight they've ever seen. Their bride adorned for that final wedding day. When you, Christian, come up to heaven and that great feast is there and the time has come, Jesus is going to look at you and go, oh, oh, I can't believe how beautiful my bride is. That's something to think about, right? That's something to think about when you're irritated at your fellow Christians. His breath is going to be taken away. He's going to be so overwhelmed by the glory of his bride coming to join him and to have a feast forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's why Paul says the reason why his return is so important. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Titus 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rick Phillips says this, According to Paul, knowing about our future glory and communion with God is the encouragement designed to keep us going through the hard times of this present life. 
God never tells believers that God has promised to make us winners now with everything going smoothly in a carefree present life. Instead, the apostle admits the tribulation of our present life of faith and points ahead for encouragement to the glory yet to be revealed. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, we, uh, uh, we had such a sweet Christmas morning. And Nancy and I were talking about that. We had all the four children to come. We started off here worshiping, had a wonderful sermon from, uh, from Jack. Uh, and, and I was reflecting, why, was, why did this Christmas matter so much? Why did it seem so sweet this year? And one reason why, we're both convinced, is because it almost didn't occur. It almost didn't happen. We lost our power at our house on Christmas Eve. Both Nancy and I had COVID the entire week before. And right when we got the negative results on our COVID test on Saturday afternoon, the power came back on. So the family came up from Columbia, the children came in, they spent the night, and we had the entire day. And I think one reason why it was so sweet is because it almost didn't happen that way. It almost was me and Nancy sitting around the fireplace eating the children's candy. That's what it was going to look like. Well, y'all, the difficulties, the pain, the sorrow of this life prepares us for the next one. This is nothing to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, I love Spurgeon's checkbook of faith. I read it every morning. And on Christmas Day, he quoted that, that uh, Acts chapter 1 text about the ascension of Christ. Where it says, this same Jesus was taken up from you in heaven, shall so come in a light manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And Spurgeon says this, many are celebrating our Lord's first coming this day. This was on Christmas Day, December 25th. Let us turn our thoughts to the promise of his second coming. This is as sure as the first advent and derives its great measure of its certainty from it. He who came as a lowly man to serve will assuredly come back to take reward for his service. He who came to suffer will not be slow to coming back to reign. Then shall the saints appear as kings and priests, and the days of their mourning shall be ended. Oh, that the Lord would come. He is coming. He is on the road and traveling quickly. The sound of his approach should be as music to our hearts. Ring out, ye bells of hope. And of course, the book of Revelation, the last text of all of Holy Scripture says, uh, He who testified these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us prepare our lives for the second advent. Father, we do thank you for the truth of Holy Scripture, for the promise of your return, God. Well, you will make all things new. You will reward us for those things that we sacrifice for your name's sake. And God, you will make all things worthwhile. We thank you, God, for the truth uh, that you who reign in heaven will come back to earth and unite heaven and earth together in one. And there we will be with you always. Until that time, help us to keep that encouragement in front of us during the dark days and the valleys and the difficulties and the tests to come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.